TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with graphic designer Alexander Isley about his days as the art director of Spy Magazine, about opening his own business, and about his design process. I think the way that it looks is usually the last thing that I figure out. If it really doesn't communicate what it needs to, it doesn't work. Here's Debbie Millman. Back in the mid-1980s, Alexander Isley worked for Tibor Kelman at Emin Company, the innovative design shop where the likes of Stefan Sagmeister, Stephen Doyle, and Emily Oberman also made their mark. In the late 80s, Alex was the art director of Spy, the satirical magazine that boldly experimented with typeface and layout. For more than 20 years, he has been principal of the eponymous Alexander Isley, Inc., whose clients include Starbucks, Armani, The New York Times, and the Brooklyn Academy of Music. His work has been collected by MoMA and other museums, and he is an inaugural member of the ID40, ID Magazine survey of the country's leading design innovators. Welcome to Design Matters, Alex. Hello, Debbie. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Well, I was thinking about uh, your visit to the studio today, and I was thinking about how long you've been a hero. And, and I, I almost always have my heroes on the show, but you're like an uber hero. You're in uh, this so, like separate sort of high altitude universe of herodom for me. Well, thank you. So you came to New York City from North Carolina in the 1980s. I imagine that you came to, work, to go to school at the Cooper Union. That's right. What made you decide to come to New York? I'd, I'd gone to North Carolina State University and studied. I started off wanting to study architecture, and then I discovered what graphic design was and started to take that there. And they didn't really have a, a big program. So after a couple of years there, I came up. I'd heard about Cooper Union and thought, well, you know, I'll move to New York, go to school, and then move away to someplace normal. And, oh, really? And, someplace normal? And then, Where's that? But I don't know. I stayed here for 13 years, and it became normal to me. What was it like for you in the 80s in New York City? It was great. I mean, I really, it was 82 when I moved here, and I I came up and stayed at the McBurney Y and gave myself three days to find a place to live because I thought that would be plenty of time. And after two days, I did get a place to live on Ninth Street between B and C and lived there for several years. And 
never looked back. It was a really exciting time to be in the East Village. A lot of galleries were starting to open up. There was a lot of stuff going on. It was still pretty darn rough around the edges, but I loved it. Now, I read that you consider your greatest influence to be your parents and that your mom was a copywriter for J. Walter Thompson in the late 1950s and then went on to teach. And you and your siblings called her the grammar slammer. <laughs> Boy, you've done your homework. Yes. Yep. And she loves it when we call her that. <laughs> um, but And you've been outspoken about how by taking a pencil and a piece of paper and writing, you could convince people of things. Um, and I understand that you believe that designers who don't use proofreaders are crazy. So I wanted to know if that was why, because of your mom being the grammar slammer. I think so. That had something to do with it. I mean, we all learned from our parents. I mean, I think they were really strong and powerful influences to me. But my mom was really precise, and she taught English. And if we ended our sentence with a preposition, she'd send us to bed. Now, I wanted uh, to ask you about that. Can you give us an example of ending a sentence with a proposition? What are you doing that for? As opposed to why are you doing that? I mean, that was something up with which she would not put. So (laughs) (laughs) at the time, we bristled, but I think it kind of taught us, my brothers and I, the that it was important to try to be precise. And I find myself failing all the time, but I try. And I think being descriptive and short and sweet and brief when you're writing and designing is something that I took from her. So your father, Max, was an architect. Yes. He and he studied under Walter Gropius? Yeah, well, for a little while. He went to um, graduate school of design at Harvard when Gropius was there. That's amazing. And he also, I believe he studied with Ivan Chermayev's father. Yep. That's amazing. You really and come from a lineage of well, very, very impressive backgrounds. I didn't realize it or appreciate it at the time, but just the, the idea of ha- having someone that cared about writing and advertising and architecture turned out to be really good influences in becoming a graphic designer. I mean, I didn't realize this until later years, but there was an atmosphere in the house where I just saw my dad had his own small business. And as a result, starting my own firm was never a mystery to me. It just seemed that it could be something that you could do if you just worked harder than everyone else around you and Mm -hmm. just did it. So I started at a relatively young age, but I always knew I wanted to have my own company. I don't think I would ever have the courage to do it now, but at, at the time, I mean, it was just good inspiration and it was good, you know, they never sat down and said, here are life lessons you need. They basically said, you can do whatever you want as long as you're happy. It's really interesting to consider how in order to be able to do anything successful, you really need to be working harder than anybody else or working harder than any way that you can imagine. Because I think that really is what it takes. I don't think people realize that you ha- how hard you have to work really to be successful. It's not accidental and it's not luck. I think that's the key. I mean, I don't think there's anything like just talent that comes and strikes you from above. I think success comes as a result of just putting your head down and keep doing it and making lots of mistakes and failing and trying to do better each time. I don't know another way to do it. And I hope I'll get there someday, you know, where you feel comfortable. But I always approach every assignment that this is going to be the disaster. It's going to be the worst thing I've ever done. And the only way to sort of muscle your way through it is to just to, to keep on trying. Now, your first job out of college was for Tibor Kelman. Yep. How on earth did that happen? It was dumb luck. I, I trust dumb luck to a great degree. And in the case, I was getting ready to graduate from, from Cooper Union. I didn't know what I was going to do. And the last 
semester, we had visiting designers come in and look at our portfolios, and one of them was Stephen Doyle, who you had on recently. Yes. And um, I'd been a subscriber to Rolling Stone because I thought it was designed incredibly beautifully. And when I heard that there was a guy who was a designer at Rolling Stone that was going to be reviewing portfolios, I signed up to be in the class. And I remember in particular, he was showing his portfolio to us, and there's this one page. It was a story of, I believe it was about an earthquake and big black modern number 20 type on one page, and in the middle of it, some of the letters were turned red to look like lava. And I remember this specifically because it was a life-changing episode, and he had that in the portfolio. And it's like, oh, you're the guy that did that. I actually got the page from him a few weeks ago because I, I, I wanted uh, – I was doing a talk about things that influenced me. And he had said, oh, he said, I just um, started work at this place. You want a job? And I said, yeah. Except he said, first I got to run it by Tibor. I didn't know who Tibor was. And, but anyway, so I, I went and met Tibor, got the job, and it was, it was great because um, I, I remember just out of school the first day – Two or three production artists came up to me and were asking for directions. I didn't know what I was doing. But it's really important, I think, to be in over your head, to put yourself in a position where you're over the head, whether you're a designer or just a human being, to be challenged. Because you know what? After a couple of weeks of being completely terrified, you're on top of it and you can do it. So it was a, it was a great time to be there. Inman Company wasn't known. And after 10 months, Stephen quit to start his own firm. So... Magically, I was the senior designer at the time, which was great. So what do you think is the the biggest thing you learned from Tibor? How to present things to clients. In what way? Although he's the kind of guy that could say to a client, I know how to be a great designer. Let me teach you how to be a great client. I've never had the nerve to be able to say something like that to somebody. But that attitude was there. And I think that a lot of the mistakes students and professional designers make is they will work hard on something, think about what needs to be done, create a solution, and then put it up on a board or on a screen and say, there it is, what do you think? Mm, Without explaining the reasoning behind it. Because I think even clients who should know better and in our positions of authority, whether it's a director of marketing or president or VP, someone who, who should know At the end of the day, I think what we do is a real mystery to a lot of people. They think that if you're a designer, you kind of – you go into a back room and put a beret and a smock on and you conjure up some notion, you know, and I think I see purple in your future or this typeface is nice. And those things are important certainly, but they don't know why you do it. So when we would present things, it would just be a series of boards. It might be 20, 30, 40 boards and you flip through. Tibor would just walk through. Here's what we thought about. Here's why we did it. Here's our research. Here's what competitors are doing. And a lot of times you'll know if a client wants something that's not sort of a good idea. So he would say, and here's this idea. We explored it, and of course that's ridiculous, so we shouldn't spend much time on that and flip the board over, and that was the one you know they wanted, and take you down a path. And at a certain point you say, you know, once you get them nodding their head, then you've got them, and they're waiting for that next board. And you'll talk and talk and turn it over, and then it's the next one, and you sort of lead them through. And it's not hocus-pocus in that. It's a logical step. When we design things, it's not just made up. There's a logical series. So a sequence of events and decisions that are made. And to be able to bring people along that same path and illustrate why you made those decisions and how they are logical decisions and thoughtful and a good design as a result of specific problems, it would help lead them into that. And I I learned from seeing him do that in action. So it sounds like it was a bit of a dramatic arc that he took to reveal the final 
Very design. much, very much, you know, and it might not be the final one or two or three. Like, you know, there might be more than one option. So I use a similar kind of methodology today, which it just seems like it should be common sense, but it's not, you know, and it's not saying, what do you think? You know, it's more, here are three approaches. Your job is to pick one. So I'm, I'm fortunate. I mean, in 22 years of having my own business, no one's ever said, oh, you didn't get it right. Go back and start over. Ever. Well, ever. Wow. So I just jinxed myself. It's going to happen next week. But I hope not. That, that's amazing. That's never happened. That's like a Cal Ripken stat. I feel fortunate, but it's because you address things and you say you've listened to you. And, and it's not by any means giving them what they want. Sometimes what they end up is completely opposite what they wanted, but they understand your thought process. And if you take the mystery out of it and the design is solving a, a real tangible problem using logic, then it works. The challenge is that your design is not just a creative brief on a page, but after all the hard work and the strategy and the thinking of ideas, what you present should look effortless and like it just happened. A lot of effort goes into making something seem effortless. You just mentioned having been able to, in the course of presenting work to a client, you were able to show them something that they might not have ever thought that they wanted. And then as a result of the presentation, to actually think that there's something there that they never would have expected that they'd want. How do you go about doing that? Or is there a project that you can talk about where that happened? I think it's a lot of times we get hired under different circumstances. Sometimes it's just to do a website for someone or a brochure or a a specific piece. And a lot of times what we'll do is say, well, we can do that for you, but think about the whole experience people have when they come in contact with your brand or your service or what you're offering. There's all these different areas. It's not just using a color palette or a logo that conveys what you are, but it's this whole range of experience. So a lot of times what we'll do is this kind of customer experience spectrum. And I do the drawings by hand usually, and it just shows from the first time they see a website or a radio ad to maybe they, if they're going to, if it's a retailer, the experience of buying something in the store, what happens when you do a return six months later, do you send a follow-up? And we show that there's this whole range of experiences that you could happen. They'll say, oh, you're just trying to churn more work for yourself. And that's not the point at all. So you could hire us or somebody else to do this. But you have to understand that this one item or initiative or thing alone is not by itself going to change the way people think of you or your company or improve upon that. But if you think about all the different other things, it can be stronger. And maybe you don't even need to hire us for the thing that you thought. If you can be able to drill down to a point where you're asking, let's just talk about your budget and what you're trying to accomplish. Let's don't talk about the specific thing you need. Oftentimes, you'll find that it's actually what they thought they needed is not what they need. And you can save them money too. It's a challenge because it requires trust. And I think Ultimately, that's a very important component of of what we do, earning people's trust. And that usually doesn't come right away. But if you can show that their best interests are being looked after by you, it can help. You're also um, quite a good illustrator. I'm wondering if all those little drawings are really what is persuading people to believe you. I don't know. That's, That's nice of you to say. I don't really do drawings that the public sees very often. but I Well, think many years ago, <laughs> Alex, you have to remember our competing against each other in print magazine's Ironic Chef oh, I remember at the that. How Conference. <laughs> and you won that first round, if you don't remember correctly, with those little funny illustrations of yours. So, Drawings I... <laughs> help. So I definitely think, you know, if I do it because it's 
I set these deadlines for myself, and I usually have an hour in order to put something together, so it becomes a sketch or a drawing, but they have helped me, I admit, rather than spend time. It's like doing tight comps. If, I think if you can convince a client of an idea by doing a sketch, or better yet, describe it to them over the phone, then it's an idea, and it's not, oh, I like this color better than that or that. So sketches help. So you left your job with Tibor in 1987 and became the first full-time art director of Spy Magazine, which was a New York monthly that gloried in ridiculing the rich and the fatuous and spawned a whole new design style. How did you get that job? I owe it once again to Stephen. They were looking for an art director, and I'd been working for Tibor for two and a half years and having these great projects. He, he would give me the big, fun, money-losing projects, which was awesome. You know, <laughs> album covers or books or things, the holiday gifts. But, uh, you know, I was itchy. Oh, I was, the holiday gifts. It was just oh. – it was great. I mean, I was happy and I was satisfied and challenged. But I would say at the time, it's like, you know, I want to be happy and satisfied when I'm in my 30s. And it gets back to putting yourself in a position when you're in over your head. And, I, you know, I, I wanted to try something else. And Stephen said, oh, we're looking for an art director. They had been hired to do the prototype, a spy that you're working on. They needed someone to design it. So I was actually hired before the first issue came out, but I gave Tibor three months' notice. And I remember going to Doyle's office at the time, and they were putting together the prototype, and Kurt Anderson was there. And I remember just meeting Kurt for the first time. And here was this guy, and he was, I remember he vividly was wearing red Converse all-star high-top shoes. And I was impressed by how some grizzled industry veteran could still be so in touch with his youthful self. You know, he was probably 30 at the time. Or 32, yeah, you were like 12, right? Was, I was like 24 <laughs> or something like that. I just, and, uh, and I just, I was impressed by his shoes. So, God, you uh, were 24 years old doing uh, the art director of Spy Magazine. That's amazing. It, it was, I'd always wanted to work on a magazine, and it was, it was great. You know, I said I'd never worked on one before, and Kurt and Graydon said, well, we never put one out together, and we shook hands, and they talked about what they wanted it to be, and they wanted it to be about writing and about humor, but they didn't want it to be goofy, and that fell in line with my thinking about when you're trying to design things that are humorous. It's like when you're trying to design for kids, a lot of what we do now, it's people pander, and they telegraph a joke, and it's, it's like someone telling you a joke, and they start off by saying, this is very funny. And they tell the joke. Or you put something at a wacky angle visually just to sort of show that it's goofy. And they want it to be straighter. And um, I was into that. And, and, and they had no budget, super no budget. A lot of magazines were and are part of bigger corporations. And they were funded. And we were up against other types of uh, companies for advertising dollars. And it all had to be done by hand. So, I mean, a lot of the drawings I did and took the photographs. And it was all shoestring. But it was great. You're lucky if there's one or two times in your life when you are convinced that what you're doing is right. And I, I was terrified, but I didn't doubt that, that, it, was right. that it was the right thing to do. And, you know, you look back on issues now, and you go, boy, I would have done that different. But I think it's just human nature, what you oh, would have done course, differently. But it was. But if you had, then you might not be right here right now. It was great. I mean, I was there for a year and a half, and for about, you know, I thought I'd be there for about a year or so. And I was fine until... A friend of mine, Helene Silverman, who's a wonderful designer, said, how does it feel to be designing something that every other designer looks at? And she said that to me, and it freaked me out. And, the, and, and <laughs> we did. We did. I remember calling a friend of mine who was working at a magazine at the time called New York Woman. Oh, yeah. And we were waiting for Spy Magazine because we had heard all about it. We knew it was coming. The day that it hit the newsstand, I went and got it. And I remember being on... Greenwich Avenue in the West Village. 
And of course, there were no cell phones at the time. This was the 80s. I remember calling her from a payphone, describing to her what the pages looked like, because that's how incredibly unusual and breakthrough and innovative they were. Calling her from a payphone with lots of sour grapes, too. Wow. Lots of sour grapes. And I was in my research that I was doing, I came across a blog by a man named Joe Clark, who's a very good writer. And I thought that he described what you were doing far better than I would ever be able to. So I want to just read what he wrote about uh, your work at Spy Magazine. This is what he writes. Uh, While no longer publishing, the look you created for Spy is still hugely influential. The articles were densely written and enormously funny and required a kind of obsessive attention to detail. Isley's designs rewarded that close attention through a rich, cohesive deployment of typographic and design details, denatured photo snippets spread across the top inch of the page, a column called The Fine Print that snaked by on the outside margins of successive pages, unconnected to the rest of the layout. Use of little icons, a pile of money denoting greed, a typewriter denoting journalism, as a kind of graphic shorthand, and a deliberate choice of a few well-established, subliminally familiar, even outdated fonts, such as Garamond 3, Metro, Commercial Script, rather than whatever was new at the time. He goes on to state, designers of today's denser magazines like Raygun and Wired could heed that lesson. Isley's finesse at balancing density and readability has not been matched. And I completely wow. agree with Joe. But how did, how did that look come about? How did, you, how did you create that? Well, I can't take the full credit for creating it. I think that the format that Stephen and his colleagues started with was a great thing to build on. And I think it's instrumental to think back through the succession of different art directors that Spy had over the years, there was a consistent feeling that came through. So I chalked that up to the leadership of Curtin Graydon, first and foremost. From the more practical point of view, it's amusing to hear what Joe and other people say about the the way that the look on the page worked, because to me, the real challenge, I mean, how often when you get a manuscript, do you just laugh? And, And when we would get the drafts of the stories, my responsibility was to not screw it up somehow by letting design get in the way because it was hilarious. I mean, you could have just printed the manuscripts and it would have been funny. And my goal is how much can you cram on the page so that stuff doesn't have to get cut? It would break my heart. There's a couple of stories I remember that we had to cut to fit and it still bothers me because they were so funny. And when you couple that with the fact that there was no budget at all, that's where the little silhouetted images came from because there are things that we could shoot ourselves and surround them with white paint and just stick them on the page. And it always amused me when you would look at other magazines that would hire expensive illustrators or photographers to do these little silhouetted headshots and things, (laughs) spending $750 for a spot. And that was the budget for a whole story. So it kind of came about the backwards way around. When I first started working with them, I showed Kurt and Graydon examples of things that inspired me. And they were pages from the Yellow Pages and old Sears catalogs and roadmaps, which from a distance just kind of look boring or not interesting. But if you drill in, it's full of information and the careful reader is rewarded. And that was kind of the goal, to try to put a lot of stuff on the page but make it logical that you could sort of figure it out. And certainly an influence was the old Mad Magazine, which has influenced a lot of writers I know, humorists and designers. I mean, I can't under-explain how inspirational and influential that that magazine was for a whole generation of 
designers, and I count myself among them. You did all of that typographic acrobatics without any computers. You did that all by hand. It was all done by hand. You actually had to know math to be a designer because you had to cast off the character account. And people say, oh, I used all these different typefaces in the magazine. We actually only used three families. And a lot of the sections within the magazine were two-color, too, for budgetary constraints. But people say, oh, you know, it, it was colorful and lots of different typefaces. And it really wasn't. I think there was actually a formal discipline. And I think the real challenge, I mean, I've always wanted to do a, a magazine with just one typeface all the way through, the way Bradbury Thompson used to do with Smithsonian. It was just one all the way through. But the different weights and the different sizes turned it into this. It's a real challenge. And I think I didn't have the discipline to pare it down to that degree. But trying to keep it formally simple gave a lot of room to experiment with um, what you did with the type. So right after you left Spy, you started your own firm. What gave you the courage and the gumption to be able to do that? I'd been saving my money since I was in college to open my own firm, and I thought, well, now's a good time to do it. I don't have a family or a mortgage or any expenses, and I'll do it. You know, it didn't cost anything back then to open a firm. You just needed yeah, a you telephone. Didn't need, you didn't need technology. I got a waxer. <laughs> right. No one even had fax machines. So wheel. <laughs> it was just exactly. And uh, so you just, you know, a T-square and a telephone. And I rented a, a room in a real estate office at, on West Broadway and stared at the phone. And I thought, you know, I'll make it six months. And then I'll go back and work, get a job at a magazine somewhere, with my tail between my legs. When I was going through your website of all your current work, I noticed that the name of your site, while the address is alexanderisley.com, the name of your site is called Shameless Self-Promotion. And I was wondering, what about self-promotion do you find shameless and why? I think it's important to promote your own work in the sense that people hire you because of something that they've seen or more often through word of mouth. But I guess it suggests a little bit of reluctance to just go out there and promote things aggressively. I have no problem with doing it for my clients. That's what they hire us for. But when it comes to your own work, it's painful for me to update our our website and to show current work. And it just seems that it's taken me off the focus of, of doing the other stuff. Now, your studio is up in Connecticut now. So Correct. you move, when did you move to Connecticut? In uh, 1995. And so you work in a 200-year-old barn? Yep. I'd always want, you know, I, I I loved living and working in New York. It was, you know, an easy commute in terms of inspiration and clients and stuff to do. This place can't be beat. But somewhere inside, I just never felt it was my home and I wanted to have trees. And I'd always wanted to work in a barn and there are not many barns on Lower Broadway. So I kind of had to expand my scope. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of people in New York who work here five days a week, and then they go away to their a house for two days. Can I flip it and be where people have their vacation house five days a week and come back for two? And that was sort of, you know, I, just the penny dropped one day. And I thought, that's it. My wife and I, Veronica, moved up. We moved our home to this town, Ridgefield, which is just over the New York border in Connecticut, and our office to the next town over. And I gave all my employees a year notice. Wow. No one would come. They just they, they wanted want to, to do stay. it, and I don't blame them, you know. Except it was you know I was going to do this move, and so I remember one weekend it was Labor Day, nineteen ninety five. It was just a life makeover, and we moved into our house. I moved into my office. I had three new designers starting, taking over projects that were halfway done. It was just like flipping a switch, and I, I was nervous. I thought, well, I'm going to go out of business in about forty five minutes, but <laughs> I want to try it. Rent it. We rented for a year so we could 
run Test. back if we needed to. Yeah. But, you know, we got busier. And I thought, boy, if that's the way it works, I'm moving to Canada next. You know, the more north you go, the so busier it, you get. So, it, it, <laughs> you know, well, Vermont at least. So your decision to um, work in a barn, did that have anything to do with the fact that Lester Beale and Paul Rand also worked in barns up in Connecticut? Well, if they could, you know, that's the heavy groundwork has been laid and the fact that Lester Beale worked in a barn in Connecticut, that's good enough for me. The favorite part of your website for me was the part that is titled What We Believe. And so I have a, a number of Alex Isley-isms that I wanted to um, talk to you about. Okay, let's, let's so, go. <laughs> so you say that in branding and promoting themselves, companies are animals that follow the law of the jungle. They can either A, try to blend in so that they won't get eaten, or B, try to stand out so they will attract a mate. We like companies that opt for the latter. <laughs> talk to us about that. I think that, you know, some some clients will say, we just we want to do something unique, just like those other guys did. And to show that you're a player in your industry, you want to emulate what someone else has done. And for some, that might be actually a valid strategy. If you're just starting out and you want to show that you can play on that same field, you might want to copy the way either the language that a competitor uses or their visuals. But other clients want to rise above that and really stand out and be a beacon and be the one that others emulate. Can you persuade the client from thinking one way to another? With difficulty, but sometimes you can. And it's why would you want to copy someone else when you've got something that's unique and, and different and better? That's one of the advantages in having my own small company is that we can work with people who really care about what it is that they want to say or do. And you can tell within five minutes of meeting someone if they're just out to make a buck and they don't really care. And so we politely kind of move on. But but the ones who really care about it and are passionate, and if they trust you, can be convinced they might want to market themselves or promote themselves or introduce themselves in another way. So, yeah, on the on the website, it, we originally had it, the law of the jungle, you can either blend in with your surroundings or you can stand out in order to get laid. We want clients that want to get laid, but <laughs> I kind of thought it would be so better. not you, not, Alex. <laughs> not it's just too blatant. You're more subtle than right. that. I think, we, you know, that's where editing comes in, and it's good to – it's just like before you post a web update or even send an email, you should wait a few hours and read it again just oh, to yeah, make sure. Oh, yeah, you say that. If, don't never send an email when, when you're, you're angry. angry. Oh, I've done a couple of those. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> One time I called a client a liar. Don't hit don't hit reply to all oh, when you no, don't mean to do no, it. Oh, no, you didn't. Well, she was like saying, I never got your proposal. And it was sitting in a FedEx thing in front of her in the meeting. And I wrote back to my colleague, she's lying. It was right there. And it went back to the uh, client. And she wrote back and said, oh, I just found it. She read it. So it worked out for the best. But it's like, whew. Oh, my. Don't do that. You know, wow. It could be a lot worse. Um, (laughs) So you also say that you should decide what a design should do before you start to think about what it should look like. I think so. And I love that. Can you talk more about that? I've sat in meetings with designers before and a client is explaining the assignment and they're sketching a solution on the piece of paper in front of them. And I, I think it's a bad idea for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think you can do a good solution or a design until you really have all the information that you need. That's why spec work doesn't work as an aside. But also... If clients think it's that easy, they just think any chimp with a pencil can be a designer, you know, and I think it's not good to do that. You need to sort of talk about what it should do because I think the way that it looks is usually the last thing that I figure out, but it's more what does it need to accomplish, who are you talking to, what mission do you have. I mean, all these should be reflected by what your solution is, and I just – I think it's hard enough to make something 
look good and attractive and appealing, but if it really doesn't communicate what it needs to, it doesn't work. You also say that your identity is more than a logo, a typeface, and a color palette. What else is it? I think it's the tone of voice that you use when you communicate with people. It's the language. You might have a company or an organization that has different types of audiences. It might be investors. It might be kids. It might be teachers. For all those people, you need to communicate, and your tone of voice and what you say are a crucial part of it. And then there are other elements to just, you know, logo and type and color certainly play the role, but it's how that works together or if there are formats. I mean, there's lots of things. A lot of times people come to us and say, we want a new logo, but instead we take a step back and say, let's take a look at what your messages are and what you're saying because that could be your problem. How do you develop a tone of voice? How do you create a tone of voice for your clients? Just like there's a lot of times a, a visual graphic style book, we have an editorial style book, and this might be the tone where you're you're talking to your customer as if they're a trusted friend, for example. This happens a lot in business-to-business communication that people lose track of it and they think it's a business talking to a business, but it's not. It's a person talking to a person. And I think just it's a few basic rules. Speak conversationally. Don't use slang. Don't use jargon. These seem like they might be really obvious and basic things, but if you go through and look at what's written, that's the cornerstone of a lot of the communication. And then, you know, picking a color and typeface is important. And I put a lot of effort into that. But if you can't read it out to somebody, then you're just, you're decorating something that's not useful. So reading it out to someone, that's interesting because you you say that you must be able to accurately describe a design over the phone. If you can, it means you're doing, that you're working with an idea instead of a technique. And I was wondering if if there was a design, a favorite design of your firms that you could most accurately describe on the air today. Yeah, first of all, that sentiment was taken from Bob Gill, so I can't take credit for it. But I, I remember reading that at one point thinking it was really um, important. There are a couple. I mean, one of the clients that I've enjoyed working with the most over the years is a place up in Westchester County, Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture. It's devoted to educating people about sustainable farm-to-table agriculture. They also have a wonderful restaurant there, Blue Hill, and the food that they grow changes. The menus change every day. We've done their menus and their signage and their outreach and their educational materials, everything soup to nuts for them. And they wanted a logo. And we said, well, how about since your food changes every day, what if you have a logo that changes too? So we have 12 different logos. The type is the same, but there's a carrot, there's a cow, there's a sheep, there's a Berkshire pig, there's lettuce, and there's that's what I mean by an idea. It's like, what if you had a revolving logo? You're not a big corporation. You don't have people around the world implementing your graphic standards. You just have a small group of people doing it so you can have a little bit more nimbleness and flexibility and a spirit that's a little bit different and, and tailorable. And when I described that to them, they really liked the idea of it. And they said, well, no, you know, no one, people don't have multiple logos. And I said, well, you can morph it, or you can change it. And that's an example of how it's an idea and not a technique. It's, and we got down to that's the perfect carrot or that's the perfect green for the lettering. But before you get to that point, there's a bigger issue. I want to finish up our interview today with just a couple of Isleyisms that I was surprised by. You know, a lot of the um, beliefs that you share on your website are rather cerebral about the process of working and about the process of design. And there are a couple that I think really probably do more than any of the others reflect your personality. And so I wanted to share that with our listeners today. So here are a couple. There is no point whatsoever to salt-free potato chips. SpongeBob rocks. Mrs. Partridge 
was hot. And my favorite, and I want to get some backstory here to this one, taking a champagne bath really stings. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> <And> sorry. <laughs> With Mrs. Partridge. While we ate <laughs> salted potato chips, SpongeBob, <laughs> he mopped up. <laughs> so those are just sort of off the cuff. Well, I think it's important. I, I, I can tell you how many potential clients say I read every word of your website, but particularly the what we believe, because I think it's important to tell people where you're coming from as a designer. And we look at sort of the analytics of our website. And by far, what people look at is our office space. They want to see where you work. But then second is what we believe. And I just thought it would be nice to share that and sort of a list of things that I, I believe in. And some yeah, have to do with design and process. Yeah. And others like, you know, salt-free potato chips. If you if There's you're no go point. For no it, point. You got to go all the way. No point. Right. So it's like decaffeinated coffee. Why? Right. Why? Exactly. Why? Brown water. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so the last one is is one that I think is also very um, sincerely you, and you say that you believe that people are inherently good. Yeah, I I do. You, know, you do. You can get swayed, and certainly, but I think. Um, I think people are inherently good and they're inherently smart. And I think if you design and communicate without keeping that in mind and pander to them in the wrong direction with either of them, then you do so at your peril. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for your optimism and the goodness and the wit that you bring to everything you do. You really make design a more joyful discipline. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for joining me on Design Matters. You can find out more about Alex Isley on his company's website, www.alexanderisley.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.